I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 uh, this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> We've begun a series through the book of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> and of course, one of the favorite things of our assembly would be to go verse by verse through the scriptures to see what the scripture itself teaches. Uh, we want to exalt the scriptures because these are, this is God's book to us. And I was commenting just this week, I, I feel like um, I've got nothing else to offer people other than the word of God. I've got no like contrived self-help method that will help people in distress. I've got nothing um, other than the best thing in the whole world for them, Amen. the word of God. And so uh, we're going to uh, go through 1 Corinthians, Lord willing, keep making progress uh, throughout the book, uh, both this morning and uh, this evening. Last week, we examined in 1 Corinthians 2 how Paul began to deal with the problems of division and contention in the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 10 and 11, Paul says that he heard a report from Chloe's people that there was division in the church. The church was lining up, following after different apostles, declaring allegiances probably to the ones who could offer them the most, maybe the most wisdom or the most polish in their preaching. And so in response to that problem, Paul begins to offer an exposition of God's wisdom. See, they were obsessed with man's wisdom, but he tells them about God's wisdom. And I suggested last week in the morning in the evening service that God's wisdom is unlikely. It's unlikely in chapter one, first of all, because of its substance, because of its message. While uh, some sophists or public speakers in Paul's day could boast in philosophical development, Paul gave them a very simple message. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Some Jews would respond to this by saying that that was a contradiction in terms. You cannot have a crucified Messiah. You could have a crucifixion, that's how criminals are killed. And you could have a Messiah. They were waiting for God's anointed to come, but you cannot have a crucified Messiah. That's something they would stumble over. Some Greeks would respond to this by saying that's utter foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, Christ crucified is the wisdom and the power of God. Remember, it's an unlikely message. Jesus Christ crucified for sin. But it's also unlikely in the objects or the recipients of the message. And in uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, last Sunday night, we reflected momentarily on Paul's description of the people that God saved through the message of Jesus Christ crucified. Remember the description of these people? Paul's kind of rough on them, right? Look down in your Bible at First uh, Corinthians one twenty six. For consider your calling, brothers. Look at yourselves, and then he describes them throughout the rest of the three next three verses as there were not many that were wise, not many powerful, not many of noble birth did God choose in Corinth, but He chose the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised in the world, even things that are not. Remember this description: things that are not. That's the sort of heritage that the Corinthian assembly could boast in. There really wasn't much to boast in at all. 
as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, at the end of chapter 1 there, Paul was pretty hard on the Corinthians. But now he joins them. Look at the very first words of verse 1. And I, when I came to you. Then you look at the first words of chapter 2 and verse 3, and he uses the same Greek term, and I. He uses a word that he doesn't use in any other section of the New Testament. It's translated, and I. You see, what Paul is doing here is he's joining them. He's kind of like a lawyer who's defending his client. You know, he's going through the lowly heritage and upbringing of his client. He had no privilege. He had no rights. He had nothing. And then the lawyer steps over and joins them. Says, and I. And so Paul, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he'll talk about another way that God's wisdom has been unlikely in Corinth, and it was in the delivery of his own preaching. So it's unlikely in the way that God called Paul the apostle to deliver it to the Corinthians. Paul says, even look at the nature of my preaching. The nature of my preaching reveals that God's wisdom is not likely by human standards. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 this morning, we'll look at three qualities of Paul's preaching during his church plant visit, remember five years before he writes this, he visits Corinth and he plants this church. These five verses will be Paul's recollection of that time when he first preached the gospel in the city of Corinth. Let's read it in our Bibles. You can follow along on your own there. I'll read it out loud. Paul says in chapter two, verse one, and I, when I came to you brothers, did not come to you proclaiming or proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit, and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to help us understand this text. Father, as we come to you this morning, we are reminded of our great need for you. Even as we consider Paul's, Paul's preaching to Corinth, on this church plant visit, he reminds us that we can produce nothing good in and of ourselves, but that we need your power and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a handout in the bulletin if you want to take notes, and I've got three points this morning. The first point is what I call the content of Paul's preaching. The content of Paul's preaching is found in verse 2, where Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's determination here when he came to Corinth was to involve himself in Christ-centered communication with them. Paul just informed the Corinthians at the end of chapter 1 
that if anyone is going to boast, verse 31, they must boast in the Lord. Remember he quotes Jeremiah the prophet. If you're gonna boast, boast in this, that you know that I am the Lord. So Paul says, if anyone is going to boast, verse 31, let him do so only in the Lord. That's what Paul did when he was in Corinth with them. Paul says, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I think in this one verse, Paul might be describing the quiet thoughts that he had on the journey between Athens and Corinth. You can read about Paul's time in Athens all alone in Acts 17, and then you you learn at the end of that time, he leaves by himself and he departs and goes to Corinth. You ever wondered what it must have been like for Paul to go into a new city? Often I would think of Paul the Apostle, you know, before reading or considering texts like this, is, you know, he's this high-powered missionary, church planter, evangelist, and so as he would go into a new city, I'm sure he's ready to, to conquer it for the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what we do know is perhaps in that journey between Athens and Corinth, as Paul's walking those lonely roads by himself, he made a determination. There's one thing that I want to get across in the new city that God is calling me to. And that is Jesus Christ and him crucified for sins. Here he's determined to have one simple message, Jesus Christ crucified for sins. This is the content of Paul's preaching and teaching. This is the content of his evangelism. Just uh, for a brief moment of reflection and application, uh, I, I, want to, uh, I want us to consider Paul's strategy in Corinth. I'm sure this controlled his public and private conversations. He wanted to know where people stood with Jesus, and in particular, his crucifixion. And that was an important part, maybe the only part, of the message they really felt compelled to give them. Now, there are many ways that people like to evangelize. Um, I'm of the opinion that there's no one right way to do it, okay, but that there can be multiple approaches. But there are some methods I think we really need to be careful about. One, of course, uh, years ago became popular and received a lot of critique and criticism. I think for, in many ways, it's it's a good criticism, but... It's been called by some uh, lifestyle evangelism. Maybe you've heard about this. Where we take the longer approach of trying to befriend lost people before we ever share the gospel with them. Okay. Now, again, I think this this can be helpful in many ways. I think we should have relationships that we try to extend and, and take our time with and and befriend people in this world, lost people. Okay, but one of the inherent dangers with lifestyle evangelism is that you never get to Jesus, right? It's all lifestyle and no evangelism. Okay, and so one of the things I think we can learn from Paul the Apostle was, you know, do you think Paul went to Corinth and said, you know what, I think I need to be here for several months before I ever mention Jesus, Because these people need to see that I'm just a normal person. 
Now, when I read this in this passage, it says, uh, he determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so, of course, we should be building long-term relationships with lost people in the world, but we need to make sure that at some point we get to Jesus. Another form of evangelism that people use, and I actually love to use, if possible, with lost people, is to start with creation and tell the story of the Bible and get to the cross of Jesus Christ. I, I do like that. And now, some people say that that's the only possible method of evangelism in a post-postmodern sort of world that people don't even know the Bible, even in the United States of America. So you've got to start with the cross and you need to work them through the Old Testament and prepare them for Jesus Christ and him crucified. But the inherent danger with that for us is perhaps that we don't get to Jesus very often either. So my subtle critique of that method that I love to use would be to say something like this. We should get to Jesus early and often. Yes, we can tell the story of the scriptures and expect God to use that through the power of the Spirit, but it's Jesus at the end of the first lesson and the second lesson and the third lesson and the fourth. Jesus Christ and him crucified sins. Paul talks about the content of his preaching in verse 2. That leads us to the second point in your notes. That would be his method of preaching, his method of preaching. And this is how I take verse 1 and verses 3 and 4. Paul's describing his method, and we're going to go quickly through it, but look at verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul says he did not use lofty public speaking or wisdom when he came to the Corinthians. I love the, the old commentator uh, Leon Morris on 1 Corinthians. He, he describes this phrase this way in his commentary. He, he said, Paul used a plain unvarnished setting forth of a simple gospel in Corinth. No lofty speech or wisdom when I came to you. Paul did not rely upon a quick step and a clap to to draw people's attention. He did not resort to theatrics and techniques as he proclaimed the gospel, but as Anthony Thistleton says, he says, Paul renounced the seductions of spin. He wasn't trying to always spin the gospel to make it more appealing to people. He wasn't looking for ways to dress it up when he came to Corinth on this church plant visit. He did not rely upon excellent logos or Sophia. He did not come with eloquence or logic. As a matter of fact, and you can turn over to 2 Corinthians in your Bible. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In verse 5, I was reading through this passage of Scripture this week and came across these verses and thought, boy, I just had never seen them in light of 1 Corinthians 2 before. 2 Corinthians 11 in verse 5, Paul says, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Paul had some opponents in Corinth later on, a year later, um, who were boasting He says, I I didn't consider myself to be least inferior to them. Verse 6, even if I am unskilled in speaking, 
I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in in all things. That little phrase at the beginning of verse 6, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I think portrays the opinion of some of the Corinthians about the public speaking of Paul. He's unskilled. And the Greek term is idiotes. Even if I am an idiot or a ranking amateur in rhetorical performance, I'm not so in knowledge. Go back to our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul continues to describe his method. I did not use lofty public speaking or wisdom. But then in verse 3, look in verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I want to look at these three words for a second. Weakness, fear, and much trembling. The word weakness uh, might include any one of a number of things or all of them together. It may be that Paul was aware of his own physical presence and he felt insecure or inadequate as an apostle. It may describe sickness. It might describe anxiety about where his other apostle friends are because he's all by himself. Or it could be just simply timidness about venturing into the strange surroundings of a city he had never been before. But Paul says, as I remember Corinth and the church plant visit, the 18 months that I had with you, one word comes to mind, weakness, my own weakness. As a matter of fact, one commentator gives a description of Paul the Apostle from a church father. I think I've used this once here before. I love this description of Paul. He says, Paul was a man small of stature with a bald head and crooked legs and a good state of body with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked. Paul's physical presence was not impressive. He was a short little guy, bald head, Eyebrows meeting. He was a unibrow with a hooked nose. Not a tower of strength. But but Paul says, when I came to Corinth, I was with you in weakness. He could be describing his physical appearance. But then he goes beyond that in verse 3. He says, and with fear and trembling. When you combine these two words together, it may be that Paul was insecure and had a fear of failure. Or he was aware of his own personal limitations and that caused him to tremble. Or it might also be, and you could write down this reference, Philippians 2 and verse 12. It may be that with fear and trembling, Paul is describing his own humble response to an awe-inspiring God. For in the New Testament, when you get the two words, fear and trembling, you put them together in the two or three texts, you see them in the New Testament. In the other passages, it always describes someone's Uh, approach to God, fear and trembling. And so it might be one or the other. It might be that when Paul comes to Corinth and he remembers that time, he was there in physical weakness and fear and trembling. He was shaking. We considered evangelizing Corinth. Or it may be that although he was physically weak, he came there with great respect and awe for God. But he continues in the text. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you're not there. Verse 3, and I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Verse 4, 
and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Paul says that his speech and his preaching were not done with man's wisdom. The two words, speech and message, I think Paul's using nearly synonymous terms. It may, if there's a difference here, it may be that he's describing both his private speech and his public proclamation, his preaching. Regardless, I think he's saying all of his speech did not reflect man-centered wisdom. Instead, look at the end of verse 4. I love this passage. Instead, Paul's preaching came in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You see that in your Bibles? Where demonstration means something like ultimate proof or final evidence. Paul says, I can't say that I used all of this rhetorical polish and flair or man's wisdom in my speaking, but I can say that the ultimate manifestation or final proof of the spirit and power rested upon that time in Corinth. One commentator described it this way. He says, the spirit powerfully convinced the hearers that Paul's preaching was true. For sake of time, I'll skip over a little part of this. I, I think that Paul might be alluding to an Old Testament text in the book of Zechariah, where God reminds Zerubbabel, who's tasked to build the temple, he says, you're, you're not going to accomplish this. He says, not by might, nor by strength, but by what? Remember? My spirit, says the Lord. What happens in that text in Zechariah 4 and verse 6 is that Zerubbabel is the leader of the Israelite people and he's tasked to come back and rebuild the temple after they've been sent away to Babylon. Okay? But what actually happens is they start rebuilding the temple and the people begin to lament the smaller stones they're putting on the foundation where the grand temple used to be. And so God tells them, do not, uh, do not look down upon these, this day of smaller things. Because one day, this temple that you're building will have more glory than the former larger temple. Because one day, I'm going to come and dwell in this temple. So he tells Zechariah, he tells Zerubbabel, he tells Israel... Don't regret the day of small things. And Zerubbabel, as you build this, you'll need my spirit to build this temple. If Paul's alluding to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he's telling the Corinthians that they should not despair in the day of small things either. What God did through the, the tiny apostle, Paul, during the church plant was supernatural. It was spiritual. This weak little man with a simple message of a crucified Messiah was the conveyor of God's power and the Spirit of God. I love what Charles Spurgeon said, and if you're taking notes, you flip it over the back, and you've got a quote from Spurgeon. Spurgeon commenting, I think he was commenting upon this text. Notice what he says. 
He says, the power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher, otherwise men would be the converters of souls. He says, nor does it lie in the preacher's learning, otherwise it would consist in the wisdom of men. I love this part. Listen to Spurgeon. We might preach Christ, or we might preach until our tongues rotted, until we exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the word of God to give it the power to convert the soul. And so what Spurgeon is doing is I think he's picking up on the heart of Paul. Paul says, you know, if you want to judge me according to oratorical performance and human wisdom, I might not rank. I can't say that I came with that sort of wisdom and speech, but what I can say is that the Spirit manifested himself and that there was power. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather have the second one, right? And so this is what I call his methods. The Spirit powerfully used the preaching of Paul the Apostle, and that leads finally to his purpose. The purpose for Paul's content and his simple message of Christ crucified. Verse 5, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's purpose for preaching the cross so plainly in Corinth was in order that their faith might not rest on the props of human wisdom, a shaky foundation at best, but upon the power of God. And while it is true that Paul's preaching lacked the persuasion of the sophists and the rhetorists whose power was traced to their own delivery and skill and presentation. He did know something about power. God's power. Spirit power. That effects true change. Soul change. In the life of another person. The proof of the power of God is not the human response of applause or feel-good moments of praise and worship, but the proof of the power of God is true conversion and changed lives and genuine, life-transforming faith is something Paul knew only God can do. Only God does that. And so as we close this morning, I want to make a few applications for our assembly. I'm going to ask you to write these applications down or think about them and pray this way for our assembly. There are three ways I would like for you to pray for our church regarding our proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. You might add others, but these are three that I would ask for you to pray for. First of all, the goal of preaching, as I study this text, the goal of preaching is not for people to look in awe at a sermon or at a PowerPoint, but to look in awe at the cross. People should never leave Colonial Baptist Church saying, wow, what a preacher. Or that was the sharpest PowerPoint I think I've ever seen. People should not leave our church saying things like that 
they should leave because of the worship and the sermon and the text saying, wow, what a savior. What a savior. So could you pray that way for our church? Could you pray that people would not be distracted by a preacher, preacher, any one of your pastors or any speaker in this pulpit, but that they would say, wow, what a savior. Second, I think this text, preaching only Christ, only the cross, does not offer approval for sloppiness in presentation or laziness in sermon preparation. I've heard some preachers declare or boast in the fact before that, you know, I didn't really study this week, I just opened up my Bible and I just let God lead me, you know, bless God. I don't take this text as being an excuse for that. As a matter of fact, preaching only Christ, only the cross, requires much labor and study. And so would you pray that your pastors and anyone who preaches from this pulpit would give themselves to understand the text of Scripture. There are many, I'm learning, I've been here seven months, right? There are many pressing needs. Appointments, meetings, needs, people, visits. But would you pray that our focus remains on knowing what the Word of God says so that when we stand up here, we can simply give that to others. That's why I study, study, study so that I can get out of the way of the text. It's, it's the text. It's what God wants you to do. You must do it. Would you pray that your pastors would, would, would put a focus on studying so that they could just get out of the way of the passage? And then finally, third request. Please pray for our ministry in the pulpit. Pray that we are not self-reliant preachers. Men and women, we, we need God's Spirit here. I need Him to quicken and empower a sermon or preaching. I will not be able to accomplish anything lasting in my own strength. I've uh, had the opportunity to take many classes in seminary and teach many of them over the years. Some of those have had to do with preaching. And one of the things I noticed about m most preaching classes is you're taught a lot of the mechanics, but you're not ever really taught much about the preacher's need for the Spirit of God to do something. So would you pray that God would help us Every week in the morning before I preach, I get a text from two different men who pray for God to use the sermon to impact the lives of people. Every Thursday, our pastors gather and we review the sermon. And we pray that God will use the sermon. But would you pray that God would be at work in this place? And may our preaching uncover the word, and may the Spirit change lives here. I want, in some ways, I, I would love to see our church grow, but in the right way. 
I don't want it to be all transfer growth, although I know some people are in churches maybe that they aren't just going right through it. But I long to see God do a work in our assembly that's unexplainable. Where there are converts coming to know Jesus Christ. Lost people becoming saved through the power of the Spirit. And so would you pray that God would not only empower the preaching through his Spirit, but all of our public proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of working through this text of Scripture. I thank you, Lord, for the great reminder that it was to me this week. Father, we can prepare our sermons. We can have them all ready, everything lined up. The margins on the page might look good. The exegesis might be appropriate. But Father, at the end of the day, we need your spirit to use your word to change lives. Father, I pray for our church, first, that from the pulpit, we would be committed and remain committed to the truth of Scripture, line by line, word for word, and I pray that your Spirit would use it. And then, Father, I would pray for the platform of our own lives this week. As we have opportunities to tell others of Jesus Christ, I pray that we would get to Jesus. That like Paul the Apostle, we might say this about our workplace or our homes or our neighborhoods. For I determined to know one thing among you, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Lord, may we not be powerless to tell others the greatest message this world has ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. But may we be bold this week to share the gospel and then may your spirit use it. Or may we rejoice that someone's faith is then resting on the power of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.